Thank you for listening to this Spectator podcast. Before you start, I'm just here to briefly tell you about our Brexit flash sale. You can get 10 issues of The Spectator for the price of one in our flash sale, plus a commemorative Brexit mug absolutely free. It has the butterfly completely out of the box, which is the cover of our issue this week. The offer ends on Monday and you can go to spectator.co.uk forward slash sale. Hello and welcome to The Edition, The Spectator's weekly podcast where we discuss some of the most important and intriguing issues within our pages each week with the writers behind them. I'm Lara Prendergast. This week, it's finally Brexit Day. So, how's the country's healing process begun? Plus, we look at what the response to the coronavirus tells us about modern China. And finally, we ask, is it time we started building our own coffins? First up, As the news agenda is dominated by things like Huawei, HS2 and public spending, could politics be, and whisper this, returning to normal? In his cover piece this week, Rod Liddell writes how, for the most part, the election result has calmed the civil war between Remainers and Brexiteers. One such Remainer who has reconciled herself with the result is Stephanie Bolzen, the UK correspondent for Germany's developed newspaper. She writes in the issue this week about why Germans are so heartbroken about Brexit. Stephanie joins me now and Rod joins us down the line. So Rod, Brexit's finally happening this week. How are you feeling about it? Oh, reasonably chipper. Uh, I think the country feels reasonably chipper as well. Frankly, leaving the European Union was only ever a secondary concern to me to respecting democracy. That was the thing which really infuriated me, that the country seemed as if it was not going to reflect uh, respect democracy. I was in favour of leaving the EU, but only by a very, very narrow margin. But yes, I, I think uh, I, I'm delighted that the people have got what they wanted. And you say in your piece that the great Brexit divide seems to have mended since the election. Do you think people are just sort of getting back to normal now? I think they are. I think... I think the last three years have been appalling. They've been appalling for the for the country and for our um, for the image of the country abroad. Uh, they've been appalling for our democratic process, and it's been a bitter time. It's been great for journalists, I have to say. I put on two and a half stone because I don't get out to take the dog for walks uh, <laughs> enough. But no, it's it's uh, it's been an appalling time, and I think had it been handled better by our government, which also presupposes that the government had had more strength to handle it better, then we would be in a different position now. And I think that more countries in Europe might be looking over to us and wondering if uh, perhaps they might go the same way. Stephanie, will you write from that position in this week's issue, you're you're writing about the German reaction to Brexit. How how are Germans responding to Britain leaving tomorrow? I think... It's kind of twofold. On the one hand, as everyone else also in this country, they are very tired. It has been quite tricky in the last weeks actually to sell any articles to my desk in Berlin because there wasn't so much interest anymore. But I'm sure it will it will hit home tomorrow and people will realize what an historic day this is and what it means for the European Union that Great Britain, the United Kingdom is leaving and what that means for Germany, because they, we have a very, very strong relationship and a very, very emotional link to the United Kingdom, and it hurts. And what do you think it does mean for Germany? Well, it will mean that they will miss a really important and very powerful partner at the at the table in Brussels. 
It will mean all sorts of things that will have an impact on um, economic relationship, on security, on universities. And, and simply in, in these times where geopolitics are changing so much, they are very, very keen to keep Britain very close because it's a reliable partner and they share the same values. Rod, you start your piece in this week's issue looking at the 50p piece that's been released and, and some of the reactions to it. I mean, how, how do you think um, the sort of Remain side have responded in the last week or so? I think the overwhelming majority of Remain voters are glad to get this whole thing done. They may be saddened that we've left the EU, but they still, I think, the overwhelming majority of them respect democracy and wanted to get this through. Uh, I think there's also the comfort now of a government with, a, with an agency majority, uh, which is able to push through pretty much what it wants. So I think everyone's in a, in a slightly more comfortable state than they were, for example, in September or October, when it seriously looked as if we weren't going to get Brexit at all. However, there is the Ramona fringe, which is now morphing into a kind of rejoiner fringe. <laughs> you tell uh, us about them. They will not give it up. And they will try anything, anything under the sun in order to, if not stop us leaving, which we are doing. But they yearn for, the, for us leaving to be a failure. That is the, the crucial point. They yearn for it to be a failure. And the truth is that everything that's happened since the Brexit vote on 22nd of June 2016, everything that's happened that has been deleterious to the country hasn't happened as a consequence of Brexit per se. It's happened as a consequence of the bickering over Brexit from that Remainer fringe which would not accept, which would not accept the result. You know, all the problems and indeed the problems in negotiating with the EU, negotiating from a position of weakness, were the consequence of a weakness of government and the Remainer fringe which wished to see this fail. Talking of failure, Stephanie, do you think the Germans would like to see Brexit go well? Or is there a sense that if it goes well, it might cause problems for Germany? That's a very good question. I, I'm, I think after these three and a half years, I mean, definitely the government, of course, will want Brexit to go well. There's no interest. Why should there be any interest by Germany that Brexit goes badly? Because that will have uh, impact on... on on people living here, on stability, on, on security, on, on people are losing jobs as much in Germany as in, as in Britain. There is certainly no interest of Brexit going badly. But I think what Roger is saying about now Britain is in a stronger position and it's going, going to be clear and um, sailing through, I don't agree with that because I think that's a simplification. I think uh, talks are going to be much more difficult, not because of political reasons, but because there is a lot to solve and it's a very, very complex relationship and what the government wants, the British government and what the Europeans want for the time being does not match. Well, do you think I, that, I oh. accept that. I, I accept that, uh, that it is going to be a difficult time and not just for the reasons uh, which, you, which you stated. It also seems absolutely clear to me that there's a certain terror within the EU that Brexit might well work and that's why we've heard I think Michel Barnier uh, and uh, Verhofstadt both saying we're going to make it extremely tough for you. There is a genuine worry, I think, amongst amongst the bureaucrats that, that, that it could be a success. Incidentally, just interestingly, I, a year or so ago, I talked to, uh, uh, for an interview, talked to uh, a German correspondent from the Frankfurt Allgemeine Zeitung uh, and a French correspondent from Le Monde about what they thought their country's reactions to Britain leaving the EU would be. And the German chap said, 
There is enormous sadness. We see you as brothers. We see you as allies. We love your culture. We get on with you very well, despite you know uh, the historic enmity. We feel ourselves very, very close to you. It's a source of enormous sadness, uh, and we wish you wouldn't go. And then I turned to the guy from Le Mans, and he said, "Good riddance." <laughs> 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 I think there is, there will be that difference. I think there is probably, as speaking to German friends, there is a certain sadness in. Britain leaving in Germany. I'm not sure it's quite strong in France. Yeah, it's certainly different in, in, in France, but I, I think you you um I wouldn't like to leave that what you said that the Eurocrats want Brexit to go badly. I, I think at the end of the day, yes, maybe there are some Eurocrats in Brussels who would like the Brexit project to fail. But then again, when it comes back to national governments, they have no interest of Brexit failing because that will have a negative impact on their countries as well. So I think we should stop no, no, this no, narrative. No, I And there is a big difference, I think, and there always was, all the way through the negotiations, a difference between the views from the national leaders and the views from Brussels. I mean, there has always been that divide. And uh, it's true that during that three years, indeed, the 27 countries put on an extremely good united front in a, <laughs> uh, against the rabble of the United Kingdom. But I, I think you will see now that divide growing a little bit between what both the leaders of the nations in Europe uh, want from Brexit and, crucially, what the manufacturers and exporters want from Brexit and what Barnier, Tusk, etc. want from Brexit. Stephanie, one detail in your piece that listeners will probably find amusing is that John Burko's calls for order, order in the House of Commons has now become the best-selling ringtone in Germany. Is John Burko revered in Germany? He he was for a time really popular, not now anymore, obviously. But at the high times of um, of parliamentary debate, when was it back in starting exactly a year ago with the meaningful votes uh, being lost three times, and I, it was just breathtaking. I mean, people would uh, would watch it in Germany. Were saying, "I don't need Netflix anymore. This is much better." <laughs> and then I think uh, Burko. I mean, you you hate him or you love him, but he is a great actor, and um, he uh, the way he was speaking. You know, from in Germany. We love the English, especially the English so much because they are eccentric. They are really entertaining. And Burko had everything of that. Plus, he was a Remainer. I mean, obviously, Germans like that as well. Rog, were you aware of this? Uh, I wasn't aware that John Burko was a hero in Germany. No, that, that's, that's rather dispiriting. And, and uh, uh, it rather lowers my opinion of Germany, which has always been my favorite country in Europe. <laughs> uh, I, I cannot bear the man. And I think he's suborned democracy too many times for me to have much respect for him. But you must take your entertainment where you get it. And I'm glad you find you find it uh, entertaining. I found it entertaining as well, to be honest. And of course, an awful lot to write about. Thank you, Rod and Stephanie. Hello, I'm Isabel Hardman. Hello, I'm James Forsyth. And I'm Katie Balls. And you can join us all every day for Coffee House Shots, our daily politics podcast. Just search on the iTunes store or an alternative phone provider. And why not leave us a review if you like it? Next, what can we learn about China from its response to the coronavirus? Cindy Yu argues in this week's issue that Beijing has responded in a distinctively authoritarian way. On the one hand, locking down tens of millions of people in quarantine overnight. On the other, shutting down bad news to avoid upsetting the bosses. 
She joins me now, together with Alex Colville, a spectator contributor who's in Shanghai right now. Cindy, you write about your family in this week's issue who are in China. How concerned are they about the coronavirus? So they're quite scared and they've been spending a couple of weeks now <laughs> on lockdown and they are pretty bored, to be honest, is the main thing. We're sharing a lot of tips and latest intelligence that they're all in the same city in Nanjing in China. And they basically have been sharing, you know, where cases of reported infected patients have been. And the one thing that stood out to me was this itinerary almost of three patients who initially brought the disease to Nanjing, which is not in the same province as Wuhan. And that itinerary had, you know, details of timings of people who were, these patients who were infected, where they were at a certain time, what buses they took, what supermarkets they shopped at for about a space of three days. So that the point was by sharing this around the population in Nanjing, you could then see were you there at that point? And if you were, then you go to get checked out. And it's incredibly detailed, actually. And, you know, growing up in the UK, my first reaction was, oh, my God, they know so much. And they've told everyone my whereabouts, if that was me. But my aunt who shared it was just saying, you know, didn't have any concerns at all, didn't even think it was a strange thing the government for the government to have had. And just asked, you know, were you there at these places at this time? And do your family feel like they've the government have got a control over the situation? Or does it seem to be sort of getting out of control? I don't think they feel like it's getting out of control, but they are very sceptical about the public numbers. We, in 2003, had a similar scare called SARS, and back then, you know, the government basically covered it up for months. So there's there's this sort of latent scepticism that the government is really telling you the truth. And there's a lot of, on social media, a lot of information flying around everywhere saying, you know, it's actually the death toll is hundreds and hundreds and hundreds more than they're actually saying. And so there's a lot of scepticism in that way. But for now, because they're all scared to go out, you know, there's not so much anger as there is just boredom. Alex, you've also written about the coronavirus for The Spectator this week. You've been in Beijing and you're now in Shanghai. Can you tell us what it's like out there for you? Well, at the moment, Shanghai is, I think, as you know, in a state of complete lockdown. Not even bars are open. Public parks have been cordoned off. It's rather strange. Uh, The city is so quiet that you can actually hear the birds sing, whereas normally it would be a complete drone of traffic. I think the the mood just at the minute publicly is one of just stoicism. We're all in this together. We can get through this from what I've been from what I've been saying. And have you heard of anyone who's contracted the coronavirus? <laughs> no, I, I have not. I have obviously, as has everybody in this country, we we talk about nothing else at the moment. What is what's the situation like? How far has the disease got? No one I know has heard anything about anyone being infected. It's at the moment it's 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 just a, it's just a phantom. It's it's a phantom which I think social media is driving people insane with and also a lot of people are bored. They've got nothing else really to think about or talk about. Cindy, you say in your piece that one of the sort of benefits of a one-party state is that it can move faster to contain a disease. What exactly have the Chinese government done so far to contain it? So the thing that I talked about earlier with Wi-Fi tracking of these patients, that's on a local government scale, so that's not a central directive from Beijing. But that just shows, you know, the one-party state doesn't have the same privacy concerns as we do in the West. So that's one example. But also, listeners probably will have heard about this six-day hospital. I mean, it's now meant to be completed in 10 days, so, you know, problems with HS 
PTSD are understandable in China, I think. But there's a second hospital that's going to be built in 15 days. So these overnight hospitals that are going to be built specialists just for this. And also Wuhan itself has been on lockdown as well as 13 other cities in the same province, which affects 56 million people across China so far. And that's not even to count, you know, the cities that have put themselves on lockdown, like Shanghai, as Alex was talking about. And the Chinese state is bringing in the army as well to help with food transportation and also to guard the exits in places like Wuhan. So the fact that the Chinese one-party state doesn't have these privacy concerns, human rights concerns, and it has lots and lots of resources means that it can just clamp down incredibly fast and in a draconian manner. And one of the things you mentioned is some of the censorship that's going on. I mean, how how prevalent is that? And and, and are people sort of worried about it that actually the kind of truth isn't necessarily getting out so i think that people have learned to self-censor alex mentions social media and the chinese are an incredibly digitally connected society at the moment people will be sending videos and texts and all this sort of stuff and they will be criticizing the local government in wuhan but what has had a lid kept on it so far is criticism for central government so one comment that was deleted was someone saying you know where is he why isn't he on the front line and that's in reference to President Xi and that was deleted so that's the sort of censorship that would happen but I think the government is probably quite happy for the local government to take the flak off this disease for now and then when it's sorted then there will be certain heads that can roll more easily. Alex you also talk about social media in your piece um, which Cindy's mentioned I mean do you think it's making the panic worse? I think social media, it's bringing out the best and the worst in people. There are some stories which are being held up as a prime example of good people doing good deeds. There's one which is doing the rounds about uh, a man in Anhui who uh, ran into a police station and placed 500 face masks on the on the desk of this police station and there is a there is a face mask shortage here at the moment and then just ran off without even accepting a thank you these police officers chased after him desperately trying to say thank you thank you so much and he just ran off so all they did was just salute him as he ran away so there are some cases where social media is making people feel like they're all in this together that this is that we can weather this storm but there are also cases where it's shaming people who are not perceived as doing their civic duty there was one woman who took some fever reducing meds and that meant that she passed the temperature checks at an airport customs and she flew to paris and boasted about it on social media and social media came down on her incredibly hard it's being used i think both to champion good examples of civic duty and to shame those who are doing badly, much like social media in the West. Just finally, Cindy, you did mention President Xi earlier. I mean, is this going to cause problems for him or is it, as you say, more of a problem for local government? So I think the stoicism that Alex talks about is really, really interesting. Wuhan had a light display a couple of nights ago, which just said, go Wuhan. So even though everyone was stuck in their flats, they could see that the city was sort of, you know, there was this sort of political drive um, for motivation to get through this. And I think that's prevalent. So no one at the moment, or at least not many people, are saying that President Xi is dealing with this in a bad way. And even Western commentators and health officials have said, compared to SARS, this is a much more transparent process. There's a great quote in your piece where he he says that any local authority seen to be covering up will be nailed on the pillar of shame for eternity, which is quite punchy. (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, but I think once the crisis dies down a bit more, we'll find out a bit more about exactly what happened in the city of Wuhan before the world knew about it. Because there are now people saying that this might have not started with a seafood market. Of the 41 initial cases reported to the hospital, 13 of them had nothing to do with the seafood market at all. So were people dying in the city beforehand? Did the mayor know? All these questions will be asked. And I think at that point, you know, people will then be saying why didn't local government do more and we'll find out more as that comes Cindy, Alex, thank you very much Hello, I'm Olivia Potts and I'm Spectator Life's Vintage Chef and I'm here to tell you about the new Spectator Life website where you can find articles on food and drink travel, fashion, theatre, cinema and so much more And you can also find all the Table Talk podcasts where Lara Prendergast and I talk to notable people about their life through food. Just go to life.spectator.co.uk. And finally, is it time to talk about death? Kate Chisholm meets the people designing and building their own coffins in order to take back control of death. And she writes about them in this week's issue. Kate joins me now, together with Dr Sharon Young, a lecturer on end-of-life rights and a volunteer at the Death Café in Kingston. Kate, you write in this week's issue of The Spectator about people building their own coffins and these coffin clubs. Can you start by telling us what exactly is a coffin club? Well, a coffin club was set up by a woman in New Zealand called uh, Katie Williams and she was basically in her 70s. She was looking to set up some kind of class for the University of the Third Age and suddenly, out of the blue, thought, oh, I'm going to make my own coffin. And decided that she would do that and then decided she would gather a group of people around her to do the same. Didn't really expect many people to come and she was quite overwhelmed by the the response and before long her house was full of people you know knocking up their own coffins but it was much more than just making your own coffin it's kind of an opportunity to express your life within that so that a lot of them will put pictures of their family or or stick stick them all around the side of the coffin or somebody was a complete fan of Elvis so she basically has pictures of Elvis all the way around and a full length one of him under the lid of the coffin so that as she said you know he'll be lying on top of me forever. (laughs) That's brilliant. And is, I mean, is this something that's also happening here in the UK? There are coffin clubs now in the UK. I think the first one was in Hastings, but I think there are some other ones now as well. But it's all part of a bigger movement towards, well, the woodland burial sites and natural burial, cardboard coffins and ecological burials, but also not necessarily a different way of looking at death, but a, a revival, really, of the reality of, of death and bringing it very much back into part, not just excluding the coffin, for instance, but bringing the coffin into the, the wake and into the experience of the funeral so that people realise this is actually is what's happening. Mm. It's not kind of put away to one side. Sharon, you're the founder of the Death Cafe in Kingston. Can you tell us a bit about what exactly is a death cafe and, and how it works? Uh, well, a death cafe is a group of people who meet together with no agenda No topics are off limit. They enjoy tea, cake, refreshments and talk about all aspects of death and dying. So what usually happens at a death cafe is that I welcome people, explain what was behind the founding of Death Cafe and people just introduce themselves by their first name and say what brought them to the cafe. 
And usually conversation flows from that point. And do they tend to be people who are facing death or is it people who've recently lost loved ones? What sort of person comes to the death cafe? Everyone comes to a death cafe. So recently I've had um, some students, uh, some very young people, but generally people who are in their 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, who are beginning to think about their own death or have experienced bereavement or want to plan for their funeral. What sort of advice do you kind of give at the cafe? Well, I don't give any advice. That's the beauty of it. And it's supportive in a way that other people's experience tend to validate or talk through uh, other people's situations and their worries. So one group of people that I'm particularly interested in, I guess, are the people who have no family at all, who have no siblings, no children, and are very much alone with planning their death and thinking about their death because... Who do you leave things to? Who do you tell where your will is or what you want to happen? They're a very isolated group of people. Kate, one of the points that you make in your piece is actually how costly everything is. You say it's Mm. £265 for a cardboard coffin, rising to almost £2,000 if you want one in oak with the head of Christ carved on the side. Do you think people are perhaps not aware of how much funerals cost? Oh, I think so, because, I mean, that's just... The coffin's just one part of it. Mm. You've got the funeral director's fee, you've got your crematorium fee or your burial fee. You have a... um, If you have a service in church, you'll have your church fees, you'll have your organist fees, you'll have flower you know, flowers if you want to, and they're they're expensive. You know, they'll encourage you to get one, two, three cars, you know. And so it just mounts up. I mean, I can't remember how much my mother... My mother was very concerned that her funeral would cost too much. And we kept reassuring her, no, it'll be fine, it'll be fine. But, I mean, it is a lot. It's Yes, it's between four and 5,000, I think, is a modest funeral. Yeah, Mm. average. And because people don't talk about death or their expectations or plan for it, it's often a huge shock when you do go to the funeral director. Mm. And not many people shop around for funerals. You don't go along and discuss your final wishes and then say I'll think about it I'll look around and I'll come back tomorrow do you? I have seen on the tube recently these adverts which are sort of uh, funeral comparison websites Mm. is Mm. that is that a fairly new I think that's a great idea I think we need to really take funeral poverty seriously and have some comparison have more information out there for the public. Mm. Kate do you think in the UK we're particularly reluctant to talk about death or do you think all cultures perhaps reluctant to talk about it? I think it varies a lot from from culture to culture. I think, I mean, if you think about, if you only have to go back 100 or so years, maybe 150, um, to the Victorian period, when death was very much part of life because everybody would have had brothers, sisters, mothers, fathers dying. But it's not just that they would have died. The coffin would have been in the house. Mm. They would have, the coffin would have been in the house. They'd have been sitting around for the wake probably overnight so they would have seen that person dead and in the coffin and they it was a, the reality of death was very much there so since really the national health service really the reality of death has been pushed to one side so it's not just the funeral profession that has kind of become an industry if you like but it's also um, the medical profession has meant that people don't feel they can make decisions about what's happening to their relatives and for instance when my mother died I just said don't give her anything after she was in hospital at the end for two weeks and at the end the consultant showed me her drugs chart we haven't given her anything and she died peacefully because I think people 
panic that their relative won't die peacefully so you mm. must give them stuff actually if you let the process happen calmly I mean it doesn't always happen sometimes you have to give people things it varies and we were lucky but trust to what's happening and I think that's a big thing trust to what's happening and let it flow mm. and it will flow it's like natural birth isn't it it's the same thing it's it's let the process happen naturally and it will be okay as soon as you start you know obviously sometimes it doesn't work like that but sorry I've just realized I'm speaking <laughs> but no. um and you've, you've got your piece in this I'm just realizing oh dear perhaps I should no, 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 but there is definitely connect, a connection and we think of the wonder of birth what really strikes me is there a wonder about death too mm. and people have forgotten that it can be a wonderful experience being with someone as they die. Mm. And we, we're so frightened of it that we have forgotten that. Well, I mean, the piece that you refer to is this review of this pregnancy show where what was interesting, I thought, was that the women, sort of 500 years of British history and women preparing for pregnancy. And what was interesting is that most of them preparing for, preg- for birth meant preparing for death because that was just so common that women would mm. die during childbirth. Oh, right, yes. That was the kind of main well, thrust of the yes. show. I mean, my mother, I mean, until very recently, that was very, very real. Mm. And you can read it in women's diaries, you know, the, the fear that they had when mm. they were pregnant. It was not a joyful feeling at all <laughs> but for a lot of the time. But if you think about the amount of research and writing and discussion that goes into preparing a birth plan, I'm sure most people have got one nowadays who are about to give birth. And yet how many people make plans for their future? funeral how many people discuss how they would like things to go and I think if you have those discussions it spares your friends and family the arguments and the uncertainty later on because there's something very comforting about knowing you've given your loved one the funeral that reflects their values and would be honoring to them I think people have peace having done that. Sharon you mentioned earlier funeral poverty what happens if someone can't afford these very high costs for a funeral? Mm. There are some options. So people who are in receipt of benefits will get an allowance towards a funeral, but it won't pay the cost. I think the funeral allowance is perhaps half of the average funeral cost. So you have to make some very tough decisions. There is an option for a public health funeral, or you can donate your body to medical science, which I've actually said I would like my children to do that if they're comfortable doing that and they can go on holiday for the cost of the funeral. And Kate, finally, would you be building your own coffin, do you think? Is that something you're interested in? Well, I'm quite tempted by the idea. I'm not very good with a hammer, it has to be said. But I might sort of talk to somebody else and get them to help me do it. Because, in fact, I did think I wanted to be cremated, but having sort of thought originally, but I now think I would really like to be buried. Well, thank you, Kate and Sharon. And that's it for this week. If you pick up the latest issue, as ever, you can read everything we've talked about, as well as more from Rory Stewart, Mary Killen and Douglas Murray. And we've got a special Brexit flash sale. You can get 10 issues of The Spectator for the price of one, plus a commemorative mug featuring The Spectator's butterfly illustration. The offer ends on Monday. It's available at spectator.co.uk forward slash sale. Thank you for listening and do join us again next week. (laughs) 